you're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone and its online sister zine, IZ Digital. You can find out more about Interzone and subscribe at interzone.press. And you can read stories, reviews and interviews for free at interzone.digital. Joining me on the show today is Matt Hill, whose novel, Lamb, is available now wherever books are sold. Hello, Matt Hill. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, your, your new book, Lamb, is, is out in the world. Uh, how, how does it feel? You, you've, you've had a kind of busy couple of weeks, busy month, I suppose. How does it feel to sort of see it uh, in the hands of readers? Yeah, really, really good. Um, I mean, it's been about a five-year process, this one. So um, seeing it finally out is both surreal and relieving uh, and exciting. So yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a good it's been a bit of a mission, as they say. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it's your fifth novel. Um, you, your third you, your third novel is Matt Hill. Some readers might know you as M T Hill. Mm-hmm. You um you started working on Lamb in twenty eighteen mm-hmm. uh, while you while you had those other novels out in the world. Yeah. Or, or maybe kind of going out into the world. What connections do you see between Lamb and your earlier novels, The Folded Man, Graft, Zero Bomb, and The Breach? I think that's a really good question. I think in some ways it uh, is a continuation of of those books, those of, of my project, my wider project, if you like. I think it touches on some of the same stuff which I've always circled back to. Um, you know, issues around. You know, well, I suppose I suppose all of my stuff contains what you might call ordinary people faced with pretty extreme circumstances thrown into those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but with many of the same obsessions, you know, um, including up to and including uh, road trip elements, you know, cars, vans, uh, other kind of technology breaking down and other things falling to pieces and, and the wider world in which they're set kind of um, coming apart at the seams as well. Uh- with, with you said it was lamb is the continuation of the project but how how do you feel how do you feel you grew as a writer with this novel you know how, how did you how did it change you well i think there's the very i mean you often hear it a bit of a refrain that each novel feels like learning to write again mm-hmm. um i think with lamb in particular i mean lamb has been various things up to and including two other novels entirely. And I think um, the process of redrafting, retrenching, um, having to kind of really think about what the novel would look like in its final shape. I mean, it it changed so much um, and it emerged out of a lot of ideas colliding. Um, Originally it was, uh, I mean, it was all, it was very much inspired by, and I've spoken about this elsewhere, but uh, Svetlana Alexevich's um, Voices from Chernobyl, which I think was more recently retranslated uh, and published as Chernobyl Prayer, mm, um, mm. which is an oral history of the of the 86 disaster. And um, I had, my original idea was to write a novel in which uh, there had been a kind of bioweapon release in a small northern town in England. Um, and I was going to tell it from the perspective of multiple voices in this kind of oral history style, but obviously it was all fictionalized and you would slowly go through and have the sense that something much weirder was in play. That evolved, that evolved into a kind of, kind of quite Brexity, thrillery situation where you had um, ultra-nationalist militiamen locking down a town. It was completely closed off. 
uh, and you had Boyd, the, who 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 did go on to become the main character, trying to escape the clutches of these, you know, of this militia, uh, and that was very much that was very much a kind of response to the kind of. Well, I guess it, it was you know the post Brexit shock, the, the kind of the Trumpian stuff that was seizing politics, and you know, and I think I can trace a lot of that through it. You know, it's been such a long gestation in a way that a lot of the world's ills have been poured into it, um, and obviously then the pandemic um, shaped it as well. But I think probably the most critical thing that happened was that I was going on submission with it, wasn't really getting anywhere, and a very honest and dear friend said to me, you know. I think you need to relook at this um, and strip out that second novel that's kind of in there and, and focus it on what's actually at its core, which is this kind of intergenerational story of a son, a mother, and a grandmother, uh, and really, fo- and really focus on on that, um, which is what I did. So it be, so it was reduced from one hundred and forty thousand words to what it is now, which is you know, eighty five, eighty six, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, and and completely transformed as a result of that work. I mean, I literally rewrote, I printed it out and rewrote it line by line, um, and um, yeah, did a did a fairly significant amount of work on it, which then obviously continued through edits and and um, and beyond to where we are now with it. So yeah, it's been a it's been a long old long old journey with it. But has it how how has it changed me? Well, it's completely changed my approach to to writing fiction. I think. And I'm hoping I've learned some good lessons from it, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You said you printed it all out yep. and you wrote it, wrote it back. Was that, was that longhand or, or were you no. still going into the computer? Yeah. Going into the computer, the, the rules were no copy and paste from old documents. Um, hmm. okay. uh, everything had to be written afresh and, and sure enough, you know, um, every line changed. I think every paragraph certainly changed and the, mm. the shape of it just the texture of it changed everything did um it was quite an amazing and, and so in some ways i felt as though i'd wasted four novels getting to that conclusion and um and and it, and i you know there's a bit of me that said well uh, oh I've, right i finally got it now i'd quite like to go back and redo those other ones but that's obviously not quite how it works but um, <laughs> maybe one day yeah i mean both of the the earlier ones you can definitely sense maybe yeah, something like the rusted shells of those, maybe in in parts of it, but I, but they also sound kind of really intriguing uh, in their uh, in their own right. So yeah, oh yeah, there's there's definitely some some stuff going on there, um, but but yeah, I, I mean that's that's it. I mean I I I'm glad to say, or I'm, I'm kind of I try to make sure that with each um, with each project, with each new manuscript that I'm I'm developing and and learning new things and learning how to shed old habits and that kind of stuff. I do see it as, you know, that that's, there's gotta be some, some reward in, in the hours put in, you know? Yeah, <laughs> sure. And, and, and I, I kind of imagine that if you're, if you're reading back your own work and then typing it back in, you are, you're engaging with your, you really, you really are kind of getting into your own prose, I imagine sort of, because it's a different thing to maybe editing it on screen actually you know seeing it on paper and then copying it in did did you did that sort of yeah kind of heighten your awareness of the things you were doing that you liked and the things that you were doing that you didn't like yeah i mean absolutely i think i mean it's quite hard to say well i like that bit but i think you have it you you have a broader sense Mm -hmm. of what it might be like to read it as a reader if that makes sense um i'm not sure what happens there's some kind of i mean i've often said that when i'm actually in the drafting stage 
you know, we talk about the zone, we talk about being, you know, in flow state and that kind of stuff. I find it quite a dissociative uh, experience, really. I sometimes find myself emerging after a few hours of writing and go, oh, where, what just happened? Um, mm-hmm. Whereas editing, obviously, you're much more engaged in um, what's there. Is it working? Does it, you know, the classic things around, is it driving the plot? Is is there, does it make sense? Are there continuity problems? Um, does it feel like the pace is sagging or not sagging or is it too pacey? You know, all of those questions. But I think that there is a weird shift that happens when you know that someone's going to read it or is about to read it. So whether you're sending it off to an editor or an agent or even that final pass as you realise it's going to go out into the world, there's a strange shift that happens where you could suddenly see things which perhaps you were either attached to, so the whole kill your darlings thing, or or just those bits where you go, oh, I don't remember like it. I don't remember writing that bit, but I, I do actually quite like <laughs> I like that bit, you know. And and there are yeah, it's like yeah, it's like a weird perspective shift that happens, um, mm. which is probably based. It's probably a fear response because you go, uh, <laughs> actually, I have to stand by this bit now. There isn't an editor at this point. There isn't a proofreader at this point. This is purely on me doing this final read through and and. Uh, yeah, I've got to stand by it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, no, completely. This is the last chance to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, had a qu- I had a question here, which you've kind of answered already, which was, um, you know, the foundation stone for Lamb and then, you know, the keystone. And I think you kind of, you said that it sounds like that sort of, that, that book about Chernobyl being being kind of almost like like a, like a really critical bit of inspiration at the beginning and then the family you know focusing on that generational stuff being being maybe the, the thing that kind of locked it all together is is is, is that kind of how you know do, do you see a line still between those two you know that kind of very that initial kind of laying the first stone and you know you know okay yeah we need to focus on the family and then it all just came together yeah i think i think it's possibly a mix of things it's I think the I think the family stuff was always in there. It was just a case of digging it out and, and bringing it more into the foreground and leaning into that. And, and that meant obviously uh, doing more um, to kind of, I suppose, bump up or or boost those those themes, those sections, those uh, interactions um, in in later drafts. Um, certainly, the weirdness of the novel stuff. I mean. That novel, I keep calling it a novel by mistake. It's not a novel, it's nonfiction. But it has a, a kind of strange novelistic quality. There are quite some very surreal images in there, um, you know, of elderly villagers who've stayed behind and still tend to their vegetable plots, which are obviously completely irradiated. And they're pulling out these strange vegetables, misshapen, uh, discolored. Um, and then other strange things. I think there's a scene in there where. Uh, a family goes back to rescue their front door, which is a family heirloom, and they end up being chased through the forest by Soviet soldiers shooting at them. Just these really inc- incredible little vi- vignettes, which are just really quite haunting. And obviously, you've got the devastating stuff. and And I think a lot of the a lot of the images from the book were used in the more recent HBO uh, miniseries, um, including the stuff around the soldiers hunting uh, pets and stuff, who which had obviously been left at home and we're now roaming the streets so all of that stuff kind of percolated if you like um and i think some of that weirdness you know that shift from the mundane which is very much the the kind of grounding of the book into increasingly weird happenings uh growths things sprouting and developing and, and obviously falling apart as the novel 
kind of goes on. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think there's a through line there. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are other influences, of course, but I think that definitely was the starting point. And I would, I would still, I mean, I still rave about that book. I think it's an incredible book. Um, hmm. oh, yeah, no, I, I've heard. Did, did she win the Nobel Prize? Yes, she did. I, I, although she's a, yeah, she's a Belarusian journalist. I'm not sure whether it was for that project that she won the prize, but um, I mean, she's done a number of these. Um, I think, I think there's an one called Zinky Boys. Uh, I can't remember the others off the top of my head, but yeah, but but a number of these oral histories, which, you know, which again, as, as a format, and I still may revisit because I think it's such a wonderful uh, a wonderful way to, to tell stories. Um, obviously, the other famous one being um, World War Z, Max Brooks, uh, which is which is again a fictional zombie outbreak, but told in the in the format of a, an oral history. Uh, Nina Allen wrote in a, in a blog post uh, that uh, you're you're too young to have fully formed memories of Margaret Thatcher in government, um, but that your political and literary consciousness has clearly been shaped by and sort of shape within the long and continuing fallout from the 1980s. And we've got fallout there and we've got, you know, that's, that's a nice callback in a way to, mm. to disasters. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting kind of quote, uh, an observation, but I also wonder, you know, if there was a list of other things, other British things that may have shaped you, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it might include labor returning to power mm-hmm. in 97. It might include, um, protests against the Iraq war, yep. bioweapons there as well, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, the fall of labor, more wars. I've got a list here. Financial crisis and austerity, uh, Brexit, which you've mentioned, the pandemic, which you've touched on. Um, I, I kind of wonder, you, 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 you surely have fully formed memories of many of those things. All of them. Yeah. And kind of how, how would you describe the shape of your political and literary consciousness and what do you think has shaped it i think it's an amazing question um i i'd say my political awakening was probably um sometime around the iraq war i would have been so 2003 that's right isn't it mm-hmm. i would have been eight yeah eight, 18 19 coming into university i remember watching the the first night uh, on a very small television in my student flat um and, and new friends at the time being quite engaged in, in the anti-war uh, movement. I wasn't at the time. I think I was probably maybe a little bit too young. Well, not too young, but I was too naive perhaps to understand the, the kind of wider implications. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, I mean, 9-11, I, again, I, I look back on that. I was in college. I was one of the few of my friends at the time who, who was sitting at home. And I did have the sense then of that being something mm. quite, quite world changing, if not world ending, especially, you know, I remember texting people on my little Tesco mobile at the time. Oh, it wouldn't even <laughs> been Tesco mobile. It was certainly a Nokia. Um, send, sending messages to people and using up all my credit to tell them that, you know, something was going down and there were, there were things happening all over the place. And I, I remember that, but being that quite, quite terrifying. That definitely shaped some of my outlook, but, um, mm. you know, equally, um, you know some of my early work and so and some of my kind of consciousness now around politics was shaped by quite a uh a quite involved obsession with with far-right activism um i went down some really dark holes with some of that stuff um and, and that still very much concerns me today um and it's been strange to see a lot of that 
a lot of those conversations move from the fringes where it obviously belongs, if not, you know, beyond into the mainstream. Uh, and, and right up until today, you know, I was just reading just before I popped on here about some of the demonstrations planned, um, or counter demos, whatever you want to call them around the cenotaph and all this kind of bad faith arguments. Um, it, it's, it's just a, yeah, it's a mess. So, so that, so that's very much been there throughout. And then, yeah, you know, um, I'm, I, I, as you said, I don't really remember Thatcher's government, but I certainly remember Labour coming into power. I would have been in primary school then. I remember that sense of some great hope, <laughs> which obviously right. slowly uh, drained. <laughs> um, but I would say in terms of my fiction, I think certainly at those first years of austerity, uh, the, the Conservative and Lib Dem coalition um, and, the, and the, the kind of fallout from that, you know, uh, well, the ongoing, I think we're still suffering the effects of that today in many, many ways. Um, and it's, it's only, it seems it's only going to get worse. Um, so yeah, has, has my work always had an element of, of that anger or distress? Yes. Have I extrapolated from the worst of those policy decisions uh, to explore what that might look like or how that might kind of come to pass? Yes. Um, I think what I've mixed that with is probably some more surreal elements of sort of body horror or, or, you know, kind of what, what to some might seem quite fanciful, fanciful speculative ideas. Um, but yeah, I do tend to mash the two together. And I think, you know, even my own kind of experiences growing up in, in the North, um, surrounded by people of all sorts of different politics, um, has always, has always kind of fed in as well, you know? Um, but, but again, I think, I think the main thing is, I think the main thing that I'm preoccupied with is is very much looking at so-called normal people doing normal jobs and and how uh, how technology or how um, progress or not progress uh, affects their day to day um, in various ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that might be a good point. It's all the, the, the normal people doing normal jobs to sort of talk a bit. Maybe you can introduce for listeners some of the the normal people doing normal jobs that are that are that are in lamb it, it, it's a tricky novel to talk about too much because it it, it really it really doesn't want to be spoiled <laughs> um yeah i mean i mean it it's it, i think i think my belief is that it has to be grounded in this sense of modernity to do some of the stuff it does but i mean it generally speaking it, it centers on uh boyd this teenage lad uh whose life comes apart quite dramatically when his father stages a, a protest or terrorist attack uh, on the firm that's making him redundant. His father's a, uh, an HGV driver, a lorry driver. Um, and um, I mean, in the book, he's described as a proud Northern man, you know, um, these are quite, <laughs> and, 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 and I think from there, it kind of spins off into an examination of Boyd, both Boyd and, and his mother Maureen's grief and how they come to essentially enter into quite a uh, an unsettling codependent relationship in in the wake of this um they they move away to to evade the scrutiny of the press or their friends and and the kind of community that they were in in Watford they moved north to a small town uh, mm-hmm. and here again you know their life just continues to unravel but increase increasingly strange ways until we're well until until Maureen Boyd's mother goes missing essentially and it's at this point that you realise that there's, there's more more going on, and that actually 
Boyd's parents have been concealing quite a strange secret, very dark secret from him throughout his life. Um, but throughout, I suppose throughout all of this, he's interacting with other people from around the town. He makes friends with a with a, a similar age girl called called Lee, uh, who is working at a landfill site uh, trying to dig out um, items of of some value, including um, hard drives that may or may not have discarded Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies <laughs> on them and stuff, which is very much based on a real thing. There was a, a chap, I think he's in Swansea, who'd thrown away a hard drive. I remember that story. Yeah. So I, I had to use that. It was too good. And um, yeah, so so again, they're very much, you know, kind of people trying to, you know, people washed up, if you like, at the edges. Um People who've fallen through the cracks or are about to fall through the cracks, trying to scratch a bit of a living uh, in this in this kind of semi fifteen minutes into the future, semi dystopian world uh, of the book. But I also, you know, even from there, you know, some of the more outlandish, I suppose, what you call science fiction or speculative ideas or horror ideas, um, even those come from, you know, they're, they're essentially around normal people who've been plucked from their from their lives. Uh, and had well very ethically dubious things happen to them um by the powers that be that so so to speak sort of shadowy and not so shadowy um so yeah so all the way through the book there's a sense of well i, I hope there's a sense of um of normality that's been corrupted in some way by external forces external pressures um and so you know these people who are, who are trying to make do get through this uh is is what what the book's emotional core focuses on if you like right um ge geographically um because because it, it's, it's a book about people and also place and geographically there i think there's one mention of uh, ascension islands and but you know it, it's very much a novel of england and of the landscape and of sort of moving through the landscape you mentioned sort of you know like like a, like a road um sort of like like a road trip and um and your your depiction of landscape is brilliant uh, some some passages i'm i'm going to just read some bits that i've written down um the 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 mothballed wind farms whose turbines stood rotting towers and blades bronzed in the light the last of the sun split into red points on every nacelle the these kinds of descriptions for me feel very photographic and i i wonder as you wrote lamb and you wrote those sort of you wrote those descriptions of of the place were you were you walking through the land walking these landscapes in your mind yes i mean for want of a better word i think i think i do have i think i do image these places when i write i keep i keep scrapbooks notebooks digital scrapbooks digital notebooks of you know well i suppose you call them mood boards um i i i've never been able to articulate why but you know i'm a big fan of the electricity pylon that stands in the middle of, of a valley surrounded by, you know, glorious nature. You can never have too many pylons. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, and, and that's it. You know, it's that kind of the mash of, of, of technology, industry, post-industry, the landscape, uh, most of which creates in me quite a melancholy sense, you know, um, not least because of the odd rushing catastrophes that we face in terms of climate Um the climate disasters coming down the road very quickly if 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 they aren't already here um and and i think yeah i i do i mean i like to take i like to take pictures anyway 
you know, the, I, I think it is about a mood. It's about an atmosphere. And I think somehow quite a lot of rural Britain, although I should probably speak more to the rural north where I am, you know, I live right near the Pennines. I try to go walking when I can. I try to run up there. And um, some of those landscapes are incredibly bleak, but, but because of that, they're also quite evocative. And, and yeah, I think I do like to, you know, the, the kind of cold reservoirs and, uh, you know, all of those places are quite moving to me. Um, and so I like to write about them. Yeah, it's fun to describe those places. It's fun to describe the the kind of how they infect, how they affect your, I know you said infect, but that's probably, probably that's true. But how they, how they, how they affect your, your inner state, um, uh, psyche, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say, you know, I'm no, I'm no psychogeographer. I'm, I'm, I don't have the tools to kind of speak to that stuff, but I like to paint a picture if I can. And, and yeah, I suppose some of those more stark images, uh, you know, from rotting technology to, to, to your humble pylon, uh, they are things that I, that I enjoy referencing, talking about in the same way, you know, and I'm not comparing myself in any way here, but you know, it's, it's like the classic ballad with his empty swimming pools. You know, th- those images are, right. they're just powerful images, aren't they? Yeah. 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 The concrete yeah. And, and, and the blue skies and the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, something, there, there is always something about that, but the, um, there's a great review or a, a very kind of sort of thorough review by Jonathan Thornton in Fantasy Hive. And he says that he, he, he sees that you find a sense of peace and acceptance. And he also, again, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. And he also says um, this sort of harsh sort of in this, this new modernity, we need to be able to let go of being human in order to retain our humanity, which I think is intriguing. Um, and, 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 and I, I'm not sure, but I wonder what you think about that. Well, I mean, firstly, I think that was a really wonderful review of Jonathan's and I was incredibly grateful for that um, and for his sort of thoughts and insights on the novel. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because because the book deals in yeah people becoming less or more human, depending on how you want to cut it. Um, they are, I mean, those characters themselves are forced to confront uh lots of different types of inhumanity from kind of uh, external pressures, political forces uh, bearing down on their family or bearing down on them personally. But but then they also make connections um, in otherwise quite inhospitable or quite harsh environments. They make connections, they make friendships, they make relationships. And um, yeah, they forge bonds, which are probably, as you, you know, as you say, could be described as humane and 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 through those then survive right you know boyd goes on quite a harsh journey through which he has to enlist uh, the help of others and some of those people are not particularly nice some of those people are are quite kind and, and generous uh, but don't know what to do with boyd and what's happening to him um and so he, he kind of sees lots of different types of humanity if you like but in the end as you say again and without giving too much away his his closest uh, allies are something else entirely um so yeah it's a uh, it's a weird one. That's going to, ho- hopefully, if it, it, everyone listening, if you haven't already got <laughs> lamb or, or have been on the fence, surely now you are <laughs> you know, hit by, hit by. Um, there, there's, there's a line in lamb where a character recognizes, um, where Boyd recognizes uh, some sliver of what it meant to have to care completely. Wonderful line. <clears throat> but how did your experience of being a father and your own feelings about 
being a son shape the novel? You mentioned that it's sort of generational and about parents. And I wonder sort of, yeah, it, certain moments did feel very true. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I think, I mean, absolutely my, my experiences as, as a, as a dad, as a parent have, have shaped what's in the book. Uh, I'd say parenting is probably one of the, the biggest well, parental responsibility, uh, and that's parenting of any kind. You know, that doesn't have to mean biological parents. That's that's parent. That's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, people who look after other people, carers, unpaid carers in particular. You know, th- there's all sorts of relationships out there that uh, where this kind of vulnerability comes to life. I think, and I think, you know, again, going back to the idea of writing out of writing from anxiety, writing from fear. Uh, mm-hmm using those things and exploring those anxieties for me it right. was very much about um yeah i suppose talking about the kind of insane vulnerability that comes with being a parent uh, which mm-hmm. i've experienced as i mean on twofold i mean sometimes i've had you know the the classic sort of intrusive thoughts the idea of things happening to my boys or the idea that you know i might let them down in some way and and again i'm being vague there maybe but um i've often felt and I think it's quite hard to talk about this, uh, particularly in the wider culture, because of how parenting is so reified and it's made into this kind of monolith of you must be a good parent at all times, you know. And one of the things yeah. that I've experienced that I found quite, quite troubling and, and quite, um, yeah, quite hard to approach is that sometimes I've resented my children because of the the amount of the sheer amount of fear and anxiety that they, they have generated in me. Um, and I think maybe that's what that line's talking to is that yeah. idea that, you know, you have so <clears throat> complete responsibility for these, these beings, uh, you want to do your yeah. best by them. You're <clears throat> going to fail in some ways. You're going to mess things up. You're going to get things wrong. Uh, you, you know, you love them entirely, but sometimes you feel as though you're not doing the best job by them. Um, <laughs> so that, so that, so there's many different parts of parenthood that just seem, well, completely terrifying, frankly. And I, and I think mm-hmm. there's always that sense as well that you've opened yourself up to the possibility of the most unimaginable, uh, unimaginable loss, uh, mm-hmm. grief. Um, so yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. Uh, but I, you know, I wanted to try and write about that as honestly as I could. Uh, and there are elements in the book, there are relationships in the book, which I think I've been allowed to explore some of that stuff through. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mostly it's about that. Yeah, it's about that weight of responsibility. And so while there are plenty of wonderful, wonderful things about parenting, there are also some, there's a, there's a darkness to some of it, um, which again, it, it sometimes I think as, I don't know whether it's culturally or a society or what, but I think we sometimes find it hard to talk about those things. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree completely. There's there's definitely, yeah, there are definitely, there are, definitely things you're you're not supposed to say mm. um uh, either to your children or or to people about bringing up children but yeah yeah what, what, one of them is essentially you know stop scaring me so much <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, yeah which is but which is also <clears throat> you know th- th- that that beautiful thing because it's like ah thank you for surprising me so much it's sort of it, it's it, it's sort of that that constant yeah that that's sort of what's going to happen next which does yeah which does go both ways and, and it does. sadly well not sadly but yeah there, there is definitely something cultural for sure mm. in that we're, we're allowed to talk about the one side not so much not so many opportunities to talk about the other side no none 
but I do feel you. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know. Thanks. <laughs> Not alone at all. <laughs> um, what's the next question? <clears throat> Let me think. Um, so you, uh, you've talked in the past, I can't remember where I saw this. I think it was an interview. Um, you talked in the past about David Peace being an influence mm. stylistically. Um, and um, Nina Allen, in her review of The Breach, made a direct link to Red Riding 1974 and the line, this is the North, we do what we want. Um, yeah. And I thought that was a great thing for, a, a great line for kind of Nina Allen to go back to. And I mm -hmm. wonder, yeah, how, how does Peace's work resonate with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I wouldn't say so much now. I wouldn't say, you know, as, as my style has developed, I think I'm, I'm much less uh, imitative. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, of of piece, so. but, but certainly, um, certainly for the Folded Man, which which was my first novel, which is ten years old now, um, was a hugely uh, it was hugely influenced by piece, uh, and certainly that Red Riding Quartet, which for me mashed together horror, the occult, with this incredibly dark period in in Britain, world history, British history, certainly with the Yorkshire Ripper and everything that was going on. Um, but for me, certainly seemed to catch something of the North that you didn't often see represented in, in novels. You know, you've got the classic mm -hmm. is, is Grim Up North. And obviously sometimes yeah. the, the weather is uh, Grim Up North. But um, I think certainly growing up, um, I'd not really been exposed to much in the way other than Coronation Street, which my mum used to watch. You know, th there didn't seem to be many cultural touch points for the north that weren't cobbles flat caps whippets uh you know that kind of stuff and, <laughs> and there, was so, there was something really harrowingly authentic about the, those red riding um novels which mm -hmm. really really profoundly affected me when i read them i read them all in an incredibly fast uh, i read them all really quickly um my dad's a Yorkshireman, and at the time, I remember. I think I, I remember going on a on a trip to Yorkshire after I read them, and just feeling as though I couldn't trust anybody there. <laughs> you know, it was this <laughs> weird like they bled into my normal life in a really strange way. I was quite oh, young when I read them as well. Um, but no, I mean, even the, the the kind of staccato style, the kind of very kind of the harshness of them. Again, they're quite a glassy quality. Um, ultra violent, ultra, you know, just awful all around really, but really evocative and, and, and powerful. Um, and, and then from there, you know, I've gone on to explore Gordon Burns' work, which I know Peace himself talks about being influential uh, on his stuff. Um, Derek Raymond's uh, novels, you know, th th I think there is something to say for British crime um, mm -hmm. in that mould. And I'd say that, you know, um, People like Joel Lane were writing in that kind of mode as well, you know, mm. quite, well, just very harsh urban landscapes where really perverse things happen uh, with not much oversight and not much in the way of justice. Um, yeah. So, yeah, definitely, um, definitely a formative influence, definitely books that I would uh, class as, as uh, touchstones in my in my development as a writer uh, and, and certainly again certainly books that i think about very often so yeah nina was was bang on there <laughs> <laughs> and and do do you do you see yourself writing more novels in the north is that is did you feel that your fiction is is going to gravitate back to that you know and, and back to that kind of urge to to give a voice to the people there yeah although i'm not sure entirely uh 
I think I do perpetuate the idea that it's Grimmauld North. So, <laughs> okay, so you need you need to, you need to kind of do a do a one eighty and and sort of yeah yeah exactly do some do some solar punk set in Sheffield and uh, yeah no I I mean the thing the, the thing I'm working on now has a lot of sequences in in Wales in in rural Wales uh, but also in um, Milton Keynes. Oh, wow. uh, beautiful! So. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So you know, uh, it involves a lot of dash cams, and it involves a lot of a lot of again driving down small roads, uh, trying to make sense of the world. Um, ah. So okay. Yeah. That's intriguing. Yeah. So I think I do. I mean, I love I love setting. I love writing about the north. It's it's where I grew up. It's what I know. And and the anecdotes. You know, I'm a bit of a magpie for anecdotes they come from the north and i include them and i enjoy including them you know it's 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 exciting for me to do that um i do i mean obviously as i mentioned earlier on now i live on the edge of the peaks um i do have a, a plans for another project which will be set on the moors so very much taking myself out of the some of the urban places landscapes that i've been writing in although i think lamb is more i wouldn't say pastoral but you know i think more countryside but yeah definitely writing more to where I am now, i.e. Uh, Glossop and the surrounding areas, uh, the Moorlands, Bleaklow and, and Kinder Scout and those areas. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll see where I get to with that. <laughs> Going back to your childhood, um, which writers would you say made you? Which writers, you know, do you, which writers do you still remember reading now? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I think some of these writers, I wouldn't necessarily say were formative influences on what I write, but I can certainly remember the experiences of them. Um, one of my earlier memories is my grandmother reading uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl uh, and being absolutely terrified of that. Certainly the sequence when um, when he gets his tail shot off. I remember being quite upset about that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, my grand always used to read to us and I think that was a, you know, those memories are, uh, pretty wonderful in the same way i remember my grandfather handing me a copy of um john fowles the magus and saying you need to go oh wow yeah 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 and i, th- I was probably i was probably i don't know how old i was in my late teens when he did that and he said yeah go and read you need to go and read that and i did and i remember that being quite an amazing experience um i grew up reading you know tolkien enid blyton um I read a lot of comics. I was obsessed with Thunderbirds for a while. Well, I say a while, it was more than a while, but I used to read a lot of the Thunderbirds comics. Um, who else? Uh, certainly as I came into understanding what SF was and could do, uh, Michael Marshall Smith, I've, I've, I wrote an essay for Tor.com a, a good few years ago about Only Forward and, and how important that was to me as a novel. Um, because it was the first time I'd come across a, a writer, a novelist writing something for which there was no budget. It was an unlimited budget, should I say. Um, and and just doing whatever the hell he wanted. And I found that absolutely mind-blowing at the time. You know, it's, a, it's an incredible novel for that. Um, uh, Ian and Banks, you know, I, I devoured all the culture novels. They, they were pretty special to me. Again, go back to David Peace. Um, and, then, and then, you know, it's cheating a little bit. But for me, a lot of my really formative things were, were games, you know, uh, I grew up playing a lot of games and, um, probably developing a sense of storytelling more through that than, than through anything else, actually. Oh, that's really interesting. Wh- wh- which games? I mean, if I think back on it now, I'd, I'd have to say things like, uh, 
Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, um, right the way through to some of the more genius stuff more recently, uh, Titanfall, uh, you know, Portal, and then and then right through to now, you know, things like um, I can never remember the names of them, and I need to remember them. But uh, there's a developer. One of the games that they produced was was called Inside, um, and there's a few sort of these indie developers just just doing really f- sort of innovative things with games and, and narrative, which uh, which you know are always exciting and fresh to play in a way and completely unconstrained in the way that fiction sometimes is. Um, so I do I do feel inspired by that, and I do feel inspired by the way that people are are using different mediums to tell to tell stories and play around with stories or subvert stories. You know, um, mm-hmm. where I, I was playing Destiny two for a good while, and um, some of the lore and some of the the backstories to not only the characters but things like the weapons in, in Destiny are insanely well well crafted and intricate uh, and and for the most part i'm not playing those games to enjoy the stories but i i always appreciate the craft that goes into them yeah another game that i i think of is deus ex the original deus ex game um which again had those branching possibilities and, and quite novelistic sort of uh it was for quite a text heavy game um with a lot of I, I at the time it felt very innovative i certainly remember playing that when i was quite young and yeah, it's, it's funny seeing how that stuff spins out. And in fact, I, I think I absorbed most of the cyberpunk canon through games rather than through literature. You know, um, I didn't I didn't read Snow Crash or or Neuromancer till I was quite old uh, or quite a bit older than 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 I could have read those things. Um, but I think I absorbed a lot of their ideas through games like Deus Ex. Um, so it's almost like I've I've kind of you know I enjoy cyberpunk stuff. I enjoy the I enjoy the aesthetic. I enjoy some of the ideas it explores, some of the kind of more transgressive, the subversive ideas it plays around with. Mm. The next question I was going to ask you was, uh, what do you read for pleasure versus mm. maybe also what do you read for, for inspiration or, or, is, or is there no boundary? Yeah, no, I try, to, I try to read as broadly as I can. I try to read. I try to, I try to keep up with the field. Um, I've, I obviously, I've been lucky enough to make to make friends or the writer friends whose, whose work I always enjoy reading. Um, uh, I mean, m- most recently I've, I've started uh, Martin McKinn's um, In Ascension, which is so far annoyingly good. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really good. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting back to that. Obviously it's been a, a busy couple of weeks with the book coming out and stuff, but um Beyond that, I, I recently read as well. It's another Dead Ink title, actually, uh, Right in the Future, which was edited by Dan Coxon and Richard V. Hurst. Uh, that's a continuation of the series they started with writing The Uncanny, which I think was out the year before last. Uh, just a, a collection of really thoughtful essays on the, on the, fat- on the fantastic uh, political, personal, uh, in search of, of meaning, if you like. Um, and some really standout stuff in that collection. A great state of the nation look at contemporary sf where it's going where, where it might go um what else uh, i also read uh, and i think you've had to take her on the show i should take her maria smith's uh, umbilical yes um mm-hmm. which is a, a really genre fluid collection uh, kind of remixes reworks lots of classic fairy tales myths Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's another collection that I think uses the mundane and the weird to, to fantastic effect, you know, the shift between them. Um, and Taker's writing is, is beautiful as well. Yeah. 
the November room or leaving the labyrinth is is yeah, yeah, yeah. um is in IZ Digital and uh yeah that that blending of those domestic moments and the mm. incredibly you you mentioned sort of you know stories without budgets yeah yeah, yeah remarkably good and her collection umbilical is uh, is out now from Newcom Press that's right yeah there's a few images from that collection that have really stuck with me uh, but yeah as you say the November room is is definitely a highlight uh, as is the the title story, which is only three pages long, but what, the, packs a real wallop. Um, and then, and then I was very lucky to read um, a copy of Aaliyah Whiteley's new novel, uh, which comes out next year, early next year. It's called Three Eight One from Solaris. Um, it's a kind of weird literary hero's journey, and told quite self consciously in that mode. Um, but it has this extra kind of smart idea conceit if you like of a of, of the, the main text is being analyzed by a future archivist or academic um who's leaving their commentary in the footnotes of the novel so you have this kind of really strange sense yeah. of one well you have two narratives going on at the same time um one in the one in the main body if you like and one in the footnotes and and the story that's happening in the footnotes is completely informed by what's happening in the in the main story, uh, and it and it's just it's just a wonderful a wonderful novel. Um, that sounds wonderful. Uh, yeah, for me, Aaliyah's best work, and that's and that's saying something. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited for for Aaliyah for that to come out because I think it's a really special book, um, and I'm very excited to see. In the same way that I was talking earlier about working out what your books are about. I'm, I'm excited to, to read and, and see other people discussing their interpretations of it because it's super dense with meaning and, and ideas uh, and actually takes on a weirdly almost, um, what would you call it? Almost kind of religious aspect. I, I'm a huge fan of Aaliyah Whiteley. The um, short fiction, I, I think she she's one of the greatest sort of working writers of short fiction mm. at the moment i think she's incredibly incredibly good and so yeah I, i'm excited i have i have the new novel on on the kindle and i've been sort of it's one of those ones that i've been saving because i i know that it's going to have a lot in it and i yeah. i need to have my brain in gear yeah you i'd say you definitely do i mean it's quite a short novel it packs a lot into quite a short space but again mm -hmm. there's some images from from that one which which have really stuck with me um it also has in the same way that much of leah's work has you know quite a sly humor about it which yeah which i really enjoy um it's playful as well as quite affecting it does a lot you know and it yeah I'd say get on that as soon as you can. It's great. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, the only other book I, I was going to mention was um, Sarah Hall's Burnt Coat, uh, which I think came out uh, 21, maybe, maybe 22. It's all blurred into one now the last three years. Um, but I found that a really compelling take on the pandemic. I mean, presume, I think it was written during, uh, the, the, certainly being written during 2020. Uh, very kind of, I mean, odd sensual i mean it's really quite sexy actually in a, it's kind of a lot of ways but uh it's totally spellbinding and and again i mean i love sarah hall's short fiction for the so for the same reasons we were discussing earlier around vagueness and things being left unsaid and, and all that kind of stuff uh that that was a that was a cracking novel uh and, and in the same way you know uh 
we've talked about Nina Allen, her, her latest conquest also has some really amazing stuff um, around the, the pandemic and responses to the pandemic and, and some of the kind of ideas around, you know, truth and, and storytelling that have, that have kind of sprung up around all of that stuff, you know? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's, there's loads of good stuff. So many good things. Yeah. Con- Conquest, I think, is out in paperback maybe soon. I feel like I've, I saw a new cover. The, the new, the paperback cover is completely different to the, to the hardback cover. So, I, and I, mm, I, I, I guess that must be out fairly soon. Um, if it isn't already out. Um, although those are great recommendations. Um, the, the last question I have was about your, because I, I think you signed a multi-book deal with Dead Ink and I wondered, uh, yeah, sort of where where are you going to be taking readers next, and um, <laughs> what do you want to tell? So so yeah, so I've got another book. Very happily, I have another book contracted with them, which is due for publication, I think, in twenty twenty five. So this is the project that's you know a lot of it is set in in London and Milton Keynes. Um, it's it's a tricky one. It's it, it I think to me. It, I'm, I'm right. It's quite linearly told, which is new for me. A lot of my stuff jumps around and chops between different characters. It follows one character uh, through a, a kind of terrible, by which I mean terribly hot summer. Um, again, not. It could be now. It could be a couple of years in the future. That doesn't really matter. But uh, yeah, it follows this character on a journey. I suppose of he is trying to atone for something that he's done. Uh, and it follows his his uh, attempts to do that, uh, some of which are more successful than others. Um, it's it's very much in flux, actually. The project I've it's been drafted. I'm doing the redraft at the moment. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what I think about it. It's completely different to Lamb, which may <laughs> count in its favour or not. So we'll see. Um, but in the same way, you know, it it has some some strange stuff going on there, and I. I'm almost reluctant to say it, but I think it has a thread of paranormal, which is something I've mm. not done before. Okay. Um, playing around with kind of hauntings, stroke ghosty stuff, but but not. Um, and and the great temptation is to is to make it a, is that actually happening or is it all in a character's head? And I don't want that to be. I don't want that to be the question at the end of it. I want it to be. I want it to fall one way or the other. Hmm. Um, but I have learned <laughs> over the last few few novels that. Um, there are risks. You end up taking risks like that. There's, there's, there's stuff around dreams in it, for instance, and uh, you know the prevailing uh, the prevailing sense is that you don't do dream sequences in novels because people find them boring. So I'm like, hmm. is there a way to make a dream sequence interesting? And that's what I'm currently grappling with. So yeah, right. <laughs> Anytime there's like a piece of conventional wisdom that says you shouldn't do X, yeah. Y, or or Z, I kind of gonna, I kind of think, well. Oh, okay. <laughs> really? Yeah. But I'll show you. <laughs> Ex- exactly. I think that, I think I'm, I, I am motivated by spite. So I'll, I'll give that a go and <laughs> see, see what happens. <laughs> wow. That was, that was really, really good. And, um, really we, we, we covered lots of different things. Um, lamb is out now and you do need a copy of this, uh, particularly if you're kind of interested in, in the very sort of cutting edge of, of where speculative fiction is. So, please buy that um thank you matt hill thank you for coming on the show oh thank you so much it's been brilliant you've been listening to interzone pod 
My name is Gareth Jelly, and my guest today was Matt Hill. Find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and read stories, reviews, and interviews for free at Interzone's online sister zine, IZ Digital. Thanks for listening.